welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at the Well. We are a couple of weeks into a series called Revolutionary, three years that turned the world upside down. We began this journey by saying that Jesus brings this revolutionary way of thinking about ourselves and about God and about everything in the world. And it was a revolution that began with his death and resurrection and changed the world. But we actually said it's a, it's a kind of a thing that's dangerous. Revolutionary language always is because there's aspects of Jesus' revolution that we're like, yeah, Jesus, turn that upside down. And other things were like, no, no, why are you messing with that? There are some aspects of Jesus' teaching that were revolutionary that we say, oh, so good. And other things were like, oh, I wish you hadn't said that. And one of the great dangers actually with um, the revolution of Jesus and some of the things that he talked about is that there may be times where he uses words or he's teaching on a particular subject and we say, oh, actually, whew, this doesn't apply to me today. <laughs> you know, I don't, this is not, I don't have a problem with that or that's not for me. Um, and today, the subject we're going to get into that Jesus talked about uh, is one of those subjects. And even as I say the word, the temptation is for some of us to go, yeah, that doesn't apply to me. And here's the word, enemies, enemies. Now, even take a moment. And when I say that word, just talk, uh, you know, amongst yourselves, if you're with people or just on yourself, on your own, just reflect. What does that word mean to me? What does that word enemies mean? What does that bring to mind? Or who does that bring to mind? Now, the reality is that, as I said, even as those words come on the screen, you might think, oh, no, that's not me. I don't have any enemies. <laughs> I'm good. Others of you may have a face <laughs> or a group of people come to mind. The truth is, let, let's just broaden this terminology around enemies and realize that kind of we're all, in a sense, this is something that relates to all of us. Some of us can indeed say, yeah, I feel like there is an individual in my life who has it out for me, who's making life difficult for me, who seems to overtly or subtly be attacking me. Or maybe a group of people, maybe there's a bully, maybe there's a group of people at school or at work or um, in your extended family, a, a subset of people that you're close to that seem to, uh, to always be poking at you and jabbing at you and trying to sort of attack you or uh, criticize you. But maybe even if we think about it, it's not necessarily an individual or a group of people, but we might say, oh, the system that I'm in, the, the, the government or the workplace that I'm in or the environment that I'm in is toxic and, um, and you know, it, it's, it grinds you down and it, it, it treats us, mistreats us as a community of workers or people or, um, you know, ethnic group. We might feel like that racism is a part, like we are on the wrong end of that, that we are, in a sense, enemies in other people's eyes. And that is a very real thing for many people. So they might say, no, it's not a certain person, but I feel like there are people uh, against me or out to get me or who uh, think poorly of me. And then may, maybe we can all relate to at least sometime in our past, someone who's done something to criticize us, to harm us, uh, who had it out for us, or who used words or actions, and, and it hurt us deeply. Um, 
I think that's true for many of us, that there may be faces and names and situations and people and environments that come to mind when we think about enemies. But maybe if we actually think about our reactions to this, we'll see we're all a part of this because there are two sort of um, very different, but in a sense, equal reactions to this idea of enemies. It is um, a violent reaction or passive non-action. And I think actually, if we think about it for a moment, we could probably all find ourselves in this. Some of us, we are engaged in violent reaction towards our enemies. Now, if I say the word violence, you would think, no, I've never shot a gun at anyone. I've never hit anyone. That's not what I'm talking about. But violent reaction is this reaction to people who are hurting us or against us with an intent to do harm or to, um, you know, to, to fight back. Uh, and, and usually these days that happens with our words. I mean, certainly the internet in general, but email and social media and texting has made it very easy to react quickly to what other people have said against us or against our people or against our group or the environments that we are in. And so if, if we are intending to do damage, if we are intending to respond in that sense, there can be some violence associated with our words. And, and some of us have that reaction that we are responding, we are reacting with violence. And even if you want to look at it more subtly, sometimes our violent reactions in the sense of to do harm looks more like a passive uh, or a, a subtle approach of cutting someone off, of criticize, talking about someone behind their back, never allowing or acknowledging anything good about them. I'm taking opportunities to uh, talk about them to other people or just even harboring resentment or anger or bitterness in us. It is in a sense an act, even bitterness or, or resentment or cutting ourselves off from someone, giving them the cold shoulder is an action which, in, which intends to do harm, to, to hurt the other person the way that they've hurt. Oh, fine, you do that to me. That's how I'm going to treat you. There can be that violent reaction to the enemies or the systems of the people in our lives that we felt like have done or are doing us harm. But then the other side, opposite but equally dangerous, is passive non-action. Some of us actually have this approach to when we are being criticized or maligned or hurt is to, is to not engage, just to not react at all, to do nothing, to pretend it's not there, to try to avoid it. Um, some of us grew up in homes where that's what we were told was the right thing to do, was to not engage. Certainly, some of us maybe grew up in faith contexts where the idea of what it meant to be a, a, a good person of faith or a godly person was to not react. Some of us grew up in cultures where you don't engage with conflict. You avoid confrontation at all costs. Non-action is the only response to attack, to persecution, to enemies. And let me just say this, whether, and, and maybe, maybe in some cases we're sort of violently reacting, in other cases we're passively non-acting, maybe some of us are always one or the other, we find ourselves somewhere in the spectrum. Let me just say this, that both reactions are equally dehumanizing. Both reactions make us less human. When we are violently reacting in a sense, and we can see this, and maybe we can see this in history or in people around us or even in our own lives, in a sense, we actually become the very thing we hate. Hate breeds hate. 
Anger breeds anger. Hostility breeds hostility. Racism breeds racism. There is a counterattack. We can see that we can get sucked into that, that a, a violent reactive approach actually makes us less human. If we feel like we are being treated in a less than human way, sometimes our violent reactions actually um, pull us into the same dehumanizing responses. <laughs> but maybe harder to see, but equally true. Passive non-action is also dehumanizing. To disengage, to distance ourselves from reality, from what's actually going on, to avoid it, to pretend it's not there, to minimize it or downplay it, in a is a sense disconnecting us from reality, making us less human. And it also actually can lead us in a passive uh, response to humanity saying that doesn't matter or that doesn't matter enough for me to do anything about it. It is actually dehumanizing everybody involved. And so either response, either extreme makes us less human and does damage not only to the world, but to ourselves. I mean, one bit of good news in this is this is not new. The world that Jesus came into, the world into which Jesus brought his revolution was equally divided, was a world in a sense full of enemies. Certainly the Jewish people that Jesus came to, and he was, he was a Jew and the, the family he was born into, had a very real and acute sense of enemies. People who had come in and taken over their land, as we said last week, who had basically seized it through military force, through bloodshed, and then heavily oppressively taxed the people to fund the empire and the military that was oppressing them. It was a brutal way. They were very clear on who their enemies were. And there were many people who wanted um, you know, violent reaction in response. They were, there was a group of people called the Zealots. They were the ones who, they were the, the freedom fighters. They believed that the only way to deal with oppressive violent force is to meet it with, with violence in return. The only way to defeat an army was to raise an army. And so there were people who wanted that kind of violent uh, reaction. And even some of the Jewish leaders who themselves probably wouldn't have taken up arms or got involved in the actual battle, they very clearly had a world that said, these are the people that God loves and he despises those enemies. He despises the Romans. He despises um, you know, the tax collectors who were Jewish people who had joined the Roman uh, occupation by collecting taxes from their own people. Those people are enemies even people from different ethnic backgrounds. They were very clear on those things. And then there were others in that world who basically said, hey, this is just the way it is. We disengage. We don't bother. Um, you know, try not to rock the boat. Try not to get yourself killed. Just deal with life the way it is. This is the way it is. This was the world that Jesus came into. And into that world, Jesus brings this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, which would have been loaded revolutionary language. People who would, certainly the ones who wanted a revolt, who wanted a violent resistance, who wanted to overthrow, their ears would have gone up and said, what? Someone's, and, and the more they saw Jesus and the kind of power and authority and ability he had to draw a crowd and to motivate people, they would have been thinking, yes, this is time. We're going to overthrow. This is what kingdom means. He's bringing a revolution. 
which is why very early on in Jesus' teaching, as he began to gather his followers, he addressed this issue of enemies to a world, to a people who were either wanting violent reaction or who had, um, you know, just acquiesced and accepted uh, passive non-action. Into both of these unhealthy but very present and understandable extremes, Jesus begins to teach on the subject of enemies. And I want you to listen to what he says his revolution is about when it comes to our enemies. You have heard that the law of Moses says, if an eye is injured, injure the eye of the person who did it. If a tooth gets knocked out, knock out the tooth of the person who did it. But I say, don't resist an evil person. If you are slapped on the right cheek, turn the other too. If you are ordered to court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat, too. And if a soldier demands that you carry gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard that the law of Moses says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust too. If you only love those who love you, what good is that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. 2,000 years later, these words of Jesus are still so revolutionary. To the point that if the world, if our world, if everyone in our world, if every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus took just these 10 verses, these few verses, and listened to them, our world would be radically changed. And yet, we all know, as we said, the revolution of Jesus is difficult. It is universally appealing and repelling. And so we want to get into this passage say, what was Jesus saying to us and what was he offering to us in a world polarized by violent reaction and passive non-action? What was Jesus saying about enemies? He says, and he begins actually with something so profound, a profound statement. He says this, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Maybe you didn't know that that's where this phrase came from, actually. Um, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, who said eye for eye, tooth for tooth? God. God had said it. He was actually referencing Old Testament Jewish law. Now, in case we think, oh, God was advocating violence, actually eye for eye, tooth for tooth was something that was meant to curb retaliation and limit violence. This was not actually words given to an individual saying, hey, someone does this to you, you can do it back to them. It was actually words given to courts, to judges, to say there may be times, and especially when someone has done something to someone else or lost something that cannot be replaced in order to prevent vengeance and retaliation, which always escalates, someone does this to your eye, you do this to their head, you know, all that, it, it'll go, it actually ends up in murder, it actually ends up in death. This was a law that was given to judges to say, there are times when you may decide that in order to protect um, the, the culture and the society and the individuals and family members of someone who did something wrong, you have to put in an eye for an eye where the loss can't be replaced or paid back. If someone has done something that lost like an eye, then the other person has, it actually was meant to stop retaliation from escalating. Okay. But Jesus says this, you've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, 
But I say, do not resist an evil person. Now, first of all, let's just say, but I say, let's just deal with that for a moment. This is Jesus actually giving new laws. I know God said this, but I'm telling you this. This is like I said, this is what we said on Easter weekend. This is one of the things that got him killed because the religious leader is saying, you can't change God's laws. <laughs> Jesus says, yeah, I actually have authority to do that. I am the lawgiver. He says, God, you heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, in other words, new commandment, new way to live, new way to respond to your enemies. He says, do not resist an evil person. Now that word resist is really uh, a really important word. Jesus was basically saying, because they wanted a violent resistance. It was a political word, right? This idea, we're going we're gonna to bring the resistance. I mean, you may have heard terminology like resistance armies. That's what the zealots wanted. That's what the people who wanted to overthrow wanted. They wanted a violent resistance. And so when Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist, he was saying, no, you cannot go eye for eye, tooth for tooth with the Romans, right? They would have said, hey, they took our land. They did this thing to us. They've used violence to subjugate us and to rob us of our dignity and our religion and our freedom and our land. We, eye for eye, we're going to go. We need to raise it. God would support this. We need to go and wage a holy war and take back the land. And Jesus says, no, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you're not allowed. In fact, as it relates to your enemies, you are not allowed to violently resist them at all. And then he goes on and gives three examples of what he means. Now, the examples, you know, of like, if someone hits you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek. If somebody uh, takes your shirt, you can give them your coat as well. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go a second mile. These can sound like, um, you know, don't resist, just be kind, be nice. It actually can sound like passive non-action. Just let it happen to you. Let it happen to you. And in fact, some of this teaching has led us to many people to philosophize, oh, was Jesus saying that you shouldn't actually have a military? You should, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be in a war. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be a police officer. And let's set those questions aside because that was not Jesus' point. They wanted to know, yes, how should we respond to the Romans and as, a, as an empire? What should Israel do against? He's like, no, no, let's just get this down to the granular level of your everyday interpersonal relationships. Forget the empire. What about you? And he gives three examples. And, and unfortunately, the examples uh, in, in the modern translation, because we don't have their context, we don't immediately understand what he's saying. But if we do, we realize this is a revolutionary new way to think about how to respond to those people who are against us, to systems that are against us, to environments that feel toxic or attacking or destructive, to those people who have hurt us, who have tried to do harm to us, whether physically or verbally or emotionally. And what that has happened, Jesus gives us some other way other than violent reaction or passive non-action. First, he says, turn the other cheek. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. And commentators all agree, this is not Jesus just saying, let people hit you and do whatever you want to them. The right cheek, if you were hit on the right side of your face, if someone facing me was hitting me on the right side of their face, they would only do it with their right hand, which means they would have to, hit me with a backhand. They would have to backhand me like this. And if you were hit on the right cheek like that, it was not just a physical attack. It was a, um, it was a disrespectful, dishonoring, dehumanizing way. It was like a dismissive slap. It would be what a slave would do, a master would do to a slave, like a, a strike like that. In fact, in Jewish court, 
um, you got twice the fine if you ever backhanded somebody. Why? Because it wasn't just the physical hurt. It was the shame, the dishonor that when you backhanded. So if I was being hit on the right side of my face, on the right cheek, it was a disrespectful uh, dismissive, dehumanizing, you're less than me. And what does Jesus say? If someone is going to dehumanize you like that, turn the other cheek, which is to say what? Make them hit you like an equal. They would have to hit you with their open hand. An open hand is what you would do when you're fighting with an equal. And this is so profound when Jesus says, don't let them dishonor you and disrespect you like that. Turn the other cheek and make them treat you like an equal. He wasn't advocating, let me just say, he wasn't advocating for allowing yourself to continue to be physically abused. That's not what this is. Jesus was talking about the dishonor with that. What comes with a backhand slap is someone disrespecting you, dishonoring you, dehumanizing you, treating you um, with less than the dignity that you deserve. And Jesus says, no, stand up and face them and make them hit you like an equal. Make them deal with you like an equal. That's what the open hand, the backhand, the, the turn the other cheek meant. It didn't just mean passive non-action. It didn't mean just let someone abuse you. That's not what it meant. It meant make them treat you like an equal. And that's why he gives the second example. In those days before the days of walk-in closets, right? People only had two pieces of clothing if, if they had them. Was a, a shirt, which is the undergarment, the only thing next to the skin, and a coat. In, in those times in the evening, certainly at certain times of the year, it got very cold. And so if you, were, if you were sleeping outside or in a tent or whatever, you wanted an overcoat. So you had an undercoat, undergarments, and an overcoat. And Jesus says this, if someone's trying to sue you to take your very clothes, your undergarment, he says, give them your coat as well. In other words, end up naked and expose them. Make them realize what they're doing to you. Oh, they're trying to attack you. But when you give them their coat, it's not just things saying, sure, do whatever you want to me. It was actually saying, make them own the fact that they are leaving you naked. Make them conscious about what they're actually doing to you. Make them snap out of their dehumanizing behavior. They're trying to strip you down and leave you exposed. Give, it a, give them the tunic and say, this is what you're doing to me. Make them own the fact that they are shaming you it will be shameful to them, right? It's this very subversive, nonviolent way of actually doing it. And then thirdly, he gives maybe the most sort of profound example. He says this, if someone asks you to go one mile with them, go two. Or someone forces you to go one mile. That word force was actually a, um, an official, a legal term that the Roman Empire gave Roman soldiers the right to force a Jewish citizen to carry their military gear with them for a mile when they were walking. They were often marching. They would march through the towns. And so a Roman soldier had the right to say to a Jewish person, you have to carry my stuff for a mile. It was such a, a degrading, dehumanizing thing because it wasn't just, hey, you're helping me and there was the physical labor involved. It was like saying, hey, carry the gear of the person who's oppressing you. Help the person who's making your life miserable. Carry the very weapons that have been used maybe to take the life of your brother or to keep you and your whole village and your whole town under control. It was, it was a way of grinding the people down saying, I own you, you work for me. You know, I have power over you. Jesus says, that's what happens in the first mile. He says, but if someone forces you to do that because they can, and there's no point resisting that because resistance means you'll just die. They will kill you. They will hurt you. Don't resist the first mile. But he says, choose to go a second mile. In the first mile, 
They own you. They, they have power over you. But at the end of that first mile, when you say, don't worry, I'll carry it for a second mile. Now you have broken their power over you and you are choosing by your own will to do something for them. It's this subversive way. He's not saying just subjugate yourself. Do nothing against power. What is he saying? Don't let power rob you of your dignity as a person and your right to be able to choose. And he says, when you choose to carry it the second mile, now all of the power that that person had for you in the first mile is broken. Right? The resistance, the violent resistance they wanted was a dehumanizing. For you to strike back someone who strikes you on the cheek. For you to try to take clothes from someone who's trying to take from you. For you to resist a Roman soldier, to spit on the ground, to grudgingly carry it, and then at the end throw it on the ground or whatever, give it back to them and seething in anger the whole time. All of that, what does it do? It just dehumanizes you. And you end up treating the other person the way they are treating you. Jesus says, no, when you subtly, non-violently, but very actively. This is not past, non-violence is not non-action. This is very active engagement with enemies. You are breaking the power they have over you and you are at once humanizing and dignifying yourself and making them more human. I think about even in the example of the soldier and the gear. You know, in the first mile, someone can be walking along saying nothing, probably saying nothing, angry at their oppressor, seething with rage, so frustrated at the system and everything that would allow them to subjugate you and dehumanize you and treat you as a lesser person. But what happens in that second mile when you choose? You are now an equal. And maybe the conversation actually starts in that second mile where the person says, why are you doing this? me. Or even if they never acknowledge it, maybe that Roman soldier on the inside is saying, why am I oppressing somebody who is actually serving me? You see what you're doing? You're not only breaking the power the system has over you, you are trying to break the spell that the system has over your oppressor because in many ways, the people who oppress are acting out of a system that taught them this is how the world works. And when you and I follow the way of Jesus and we turn it upside down, with this subtle but strong and powerful response to power and enemies, we are changing the world. It takes back your humanity and your dignity and it humanizes the other person. But Jesus goes on. This isn't just about protest. This isn't just about standing up for our dignity and our, and our rights as a human being. This isn't just about standing up to power, speaking to power. He goes further. He said, now that you have taken or as you begin to take more steps to humanize yourself and dignify yourself and the other person and your enemy and your oppressor, he says, now you are free to actually choose to love them. And this is where he ups the ante. He says, you've heard it said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, who said that? I mean, God didn't say that. God said, love your neighbor in the Old Testament law. But there was probably, commentators agree, there's probably a sort of a rabbi tradition in those days where it was saying, okay, yeah, you can love your neighbor, but you're allowed to hate your enemy. You're allowed to hate the Samaritans. You're allowed to hate the Romans. You're allowed to hate the tax collectors. You're allowed to hate all of these other people who are not like you, who are against you, who are, who are against your family, or your family's had a long feud with, or who are outside your family. That's permitted. And Jesus says, now I'm telling you, love your enemy your enemy. And he says, love them, pray for them, bless them, which is to say, I want you to see your enemy as someone to serve, 
pray for and bless. I am changing how you're viewing this person. Not only are you viewing them as an equal, but you are now actually free. When you begin to view yourself with dignity and them with dignity, when you begin to subvert this dehumanizing way of treating each other, now you are free to love them. And love them means you serve them, you pray for them, and you bless them. Because Jesus' point was, protest alone will not change the world. Humanizing yourself, standing up to power alone will not change the world. Only love will. And yes, love means all of these things. Love means resisting in a way that attempts to bring human dignity to you and your enemy. Resisting in a way that attempts to bring dignity to you and your enemy. But it also means choosing to serve beyond what is demanded or required of you. It means choosing to bless instead of curse. It means choosing to pray for those who are against you. Friends, speaking to power, speaking up for ourselves in the face of persecution and our enemies is the beginning point, but protest and human dignity alone is not enough. Love must enter. This must become the way of love. To resist, to serve, to bless, and to pray. Dr. Martin Luther King was famous for saying in those days when he was fighting slavery and fighting for freedom for black people, he said, we are not just trying to save black people's bodies, but white people's souls. He said, right, the only way forward is what? A new humanity, where we are equal, where we love one another. This is the way forward. And this is so hard to do. <laughs> this is so difficult to actually wrap our minds around, to actually say what, to, to, to think about how do I get away from the tendencies to violent reaction or passive non-action and how do I find this way into this revolutionary love that Jesus invites us into. I want you to listen to one person's story, uh, Danielle Strickland, who's an author and a speaker. She's a major with the Salvation Army. And for a period of time, she was working in Asia, working with brothels, trying to help and rescue girls who were trafficked or who were in the sex industry. And of course, in that context, the brothels and the brothel owners were the enemies. But I want you to listen to how she served and loved and prayed for and blessed her enemies and what was the result of that. The student, you know, came and heard about this incredible brothel ministry we were doing, so she came to shadow me to learn how to do it. It's so much fun, you know. She's from England. So we get to this one brothel, uh, XTC, you know, very clever name, and uh, I get to the, the brothel, I say, hey, knock on the door. I'm like, from the Salvation Hour, I do my whole spiel. You know, we visit massage parlors in the area, and we're here to visit you. Ta-da, it's your lucky day, you know. And the lady goes, yeah, thanks anyway, we don't want you closes the door. 
And uh, I was like, oh, don't worry. It's just the first week, you know? So we go back the next week and knock on the door. You know, hey, so sorry, hey, remember me? Hi. <laughs> the lady's like, yeah, I remember you. I think I said I didn't want you. Like, please go away, you know? I said, but I brought, I brought cupcakes. The lady goes, oh, cool. Takes a cupcake, slams the door. <laughs> and the third week, I said, oh, don't worry about it. I said to the student, it happens all the time, you know? <laughs> the third week comes, I knock on the door, you know? The lady's like, which part of no? Don't you understand? I said, well, actually, it's, it's the no bit. <laughs> I struggle with it in a lot of areas. <laughs> See you next week. And we get into the car, and the, the student says, you know, this is quite an incredible ministry you got going on here. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad I, I flew all the way from England to see it and, <laughs> for myself, you know. <laughs> and you know, what I, you know what I said? Wait for it. Wait for it, my little Padawan. A struggle we must have. <laughs> Learning to swim we do together. Fourth week, fifth week, sixth week, I kid you not. She was only with me three months. I was like, please God, please God. <laughs> I don't know what it was, eight, nine, ten weeks later, after no, please go away, stop it, okay, fine, I'll take the baked goods, okay, please go away, now you're embarrassing me, you know, like, it is on and on and on, finally we get there, same two of us, same exact spiel, nothing has changed except the date expiry on the cupcakes, that's it. Knock on the door. Hey, I just remember launching into my, and the, the, the exact same manager, exact same owner opens the door and says, thank God you're here. What? The student's like, Grr. She said, you gotta come help, you gotta help me, you gotta help me right now, come with me. So we go through this brothel to the back of the room and in the back room there's this girl there and she's crying, you know, she's really distraught and, she's, and this owner says, tell her, tell them what you told me, tell them what, she goes, I don't know how to say it. She said, just say it like you told it to me. And the girl goes, I need forgiveness, I need healing, I need freedom, can you help me? You know? Or like, I'm like, what? I said, well, I know this guy who can forgive sins and heal diseases and set people free. His name is Jesus. You know, I know he can help you. That's why I've come over and over and, and over again. That's, that's why I show up. Friends, loving your enemies is a very practical thing. It's not a philosophy to debate. It is a way of life that Jesus invites us into, to whoever happens to be in front of us. And so what does that mean for us as we deal with and live in a world where we or people we know have enemies, people and systems and groups and individuals who are against us, who are out to hurt us, who are criticizing us, maligning us, working against us, or working against, criticizing, maligning, hurting people we know. Well, I think maybe there's two groups of us, and so I want to speak to one group. For some of us, we need to use more words and have less silence. What I mean is for some of us, we need to speak up. And that may be in our workplace or in our school or in the environment that we are in. To use our words to actually, sh you know, to realize maybe I've been too silent 
I've been too scared to engage. I've been taught not to engage. I've been taught not to speak. And for some of us, we need to speak up and say, I'm not okay with the way I'm being treated. It's not okay with the way we are being treated. And whether you're, you need to maybe need to be a voice for the people you work with or the people you live with or however that works that you need to say. It's a speaking up, saying, I'm not okay with this. But maybe there are some of us who have opted for passive non-action because it doesn't affect us directly. And maybe we've philosophized about it and we've said, oh yeah, see, we've used the, no the violent reaction that some people have had to discredit the problem. Oh, see the way they responded? That's so bad. Instead of actually saying, no, the oppression is wrong, the racism is wrong, the violence is wrong, the mistreatment is wrong. And some of us need to use our words to speak up for others and say, I'm not okay with the way they are being treated, with the way he is being treated, with the way she is being treated. We need to use our voice, some of us who aren't victims of racism, who aren't victims of, but we can actually use our voice to say, it's time to speak up. Less silence, more words. Not just speaking up, but praying up, using our words in prayer. If Jesus says, pray for your enemies, how many of us would consider writing a prayer for our government? or for the opposition, or for our enemy. We, we forward a lot of social, on social media stuff that reinforces our own biases and our own frustrations against our enemies, against individuals, against systems, against people groups. How many of us would actually write a prayer for our enemies and post that on our social media feed? Write a prayer for the government leaders we've been so critical about. Write a prayer for the groups of people that we have felt like have been oppressing us. Write a prayer to the individual, for the individual that we feel has been out to get us. Some of us need to have, be less silent and more use more words in prayer. But then there are others of us who need to use less words and have more action. Like we've talked a lot. We've talked a lot about our enemies. We've talked a lot about them to other people, but we have not served them. We've spent a lot of energy thinking about the stuff they've done and writing about it and in a sense of like, um, you know, being vocal about it. We're all really good at being vocal, many of us. But what have we done? Jesus says you're actually meant to serve your enemies. That's that going the second mile, actually choosing to serve. And that may look like staying later on your shift, beyond what's required of you, beyond what's being demanded of you, and saying, I want to do a little bit more for my employer or for this person, or for this company. Not because they've been so good to you, but Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. Or what would it mean to actually, you know, ask questions of my boss, of someone who I feel like is against me. To actually ask questions, to know who they are, to know their life, to know what struggles they have, to know what pains they have, to know what um, issues they are dealing with. To maybe even offer to pray for them. Or just simply to use these words, how can I help you? Less words, more actions that look like serving or maybe blessing, like cupcakes, like coffee, like caring about an individual, wanting good for them. Maybe even writing an email of encouragement or a text that it chooses to bless them, to affirm them, to encourage them because we realize our oppressors and our people are caught in the same dehumanizing systems and world that we are and no one is blessing them. No one is encouraging them. What would it mean for me to do that? You may say, Vijay, this is hard. <laughs> 
And does it even work? Does this really break the power of people and systems and enemies? Does this really turn the world upside down? Well, Jesus would answer that question, not when he spoke these words, but three years later. When, because he spoke to religious power, because he spoke to political power, because he actually turned the other cheek and he ended up by his own life and loving response, shamed them for the way they were treating him. Eventually it was too much for them and they put him to death. But in his death, Jesus wasn't shaking his fist as someone who merely resisted. What did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. He prayed for them. He spoke blessing for them. He turned the other cheek when he was being mocked and criticized and crucified. Jesus didn't just tell us these things, friends. He acted it out for us. And through his death, we see what it means to love your enemies. And yet, three days later when he was raised to life, his resurrection proved that love is stronger than hate. Love is stronger than your enemies. Love is stronger than death itself. Which means you and I take these small steps of using our words and using our actions in gently but strongly humanizing ourselves and our enemy, choosing to serve them, choosing to bless them, and choosing to pray for them. And we do it with the power of our resurrected revolutionary Jesus, whose love is strong. And so I want to invite you just to respond to this through a song that's based on the Lord's Prayer that the band's going to sing for us, and it's called Your Love is Strong.
why should I worry? So why should I worry? Why do I freak out? Two things you told me 